Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. Graduation season is coming to a close, and the class of 2019 is ready to take their first steps in their professional journey. They will have celebrated and tossed their caps, and they will have sat through mostly terrible commencement speeches, but also some good ones. You want inspiration? Here's American Institution Bill Nye from this past month. Now here's something else I hope you'll carry with you as long as you live. Everyone you'll ever meet knows something you don't. Everyone. Farmers know things about plants that most of us, even botanists, never will. Bricklayers have an intimate knowledge of what it takes to lay bricks. Cooks know how to use copper bowls to control egg proteins. And that's cool. Respect that knowledge and learn from others. It will bring out the best in them, and it will bring out the best in you. Nice thoughts, right? So I didn't do a ton of research here, but one topic that rarely comes up in commencement speeches is the topic of student loans. I mean, graduation is a time of looking forward to bright futures, right? Who wants to think about the clouds of student loans at such a time? And yet... It's a reality for many of us, like many, many, many of us. 43 million Americans currently have student debt. On average, they owe more than $47,000. 5.2 million are in default. And college costs keep rising. For example, at Ohio State, a public university, in-state students pay around $27,000 a year. An elite private school like Stanford costs about $74,000. In 2019, people who held student loan debt, either private or federal, owed a collective $1.5 trillion. Public colleges and universities, as well as private colleges, do continue to raise tuition. So this is kind of the bind that we're in right now. In this episode of the podcast, we're going to talk about student loans, and specifically, we're diving into the complicated balance of the access to higher education that loans can offer students, as well as the clouds that can hang over their heads in the future. To help clarify the picture, we're going to hear from Matt Chingos, the director of the Center on Education Data and Policy here at the Urban Institute. I asked Matt to give some context on how student loans in the U.S. have gone up dramatically in recent years. So how do we get from $300 billion 15 years ago to $1.5 trillion today? A part of that is more people going to college, people staying longer in college, being more likely to finish a degree, to go on and get a graduate degree. So if you look back further to the late 1980s, from the late 1980s to today, about 30% of the increase in outstanding student loans can be attributed to more people going to college. Matt says these days people are borrowing more often and they're borrowing more. But it's not just for undergraduate degrees. Loans for graduate school make up an increasing part of our total student debt. So the universe of student loan debt is really a lot more varied than I think a lot of people realized. So graduate student debt is a big, a big part of that. You know, grad students are about a third of the borrowing every year, even though they're only about 14% of students. And the balances look very different. So undergraduates are very unlikely to borrow more than thirty or forty thousand dollars. You know, the average debt for a, a BA who has any debt is about thirty thousand dollars. Where you start to see those bigger balances are for graduate students. You know, some only borrow a little bit, but if you think about someone with eighty, hundred thousand dollars in debt, it's almost always a graduate student. 
So that's a lot of young adults with debt clouds hanging over their heads, but that's not necessarily a bad thing, or at least not a bad situation for many adults to find themselves. In fact, student loan debt comes from individuals seeking out educational opportunities, and it's a fundamental policy goal for our country. I think in general, the idea of the federal student loan program is to open up access to opportunity that people wouldn't have otherwise to solve a failure in the credit markets, which is that a private bank isn't going to give a loan to everyone on the same fair terms. They're going to say, if you're from a low-income family, if you have no credit history, we're not going to want to give you a loan or it's going to be on really bad terms. So it's a really important program because it provides access to credit for an investment opportunity, higher education, that's going to pay off for a lot of people but credit that they wouldn't have in the absence of the program. So it's really solving an important market failure. So the ability to access student loans is really important if we want more Americans to go to school. And why would we want that? Well, because having a college degree is strongly associated with higher lifetime earnings. You know, it pays off. As a society, we should want more people to attain higher education so that they can fulfill their potential, increase their income, and better contribute to the broader society. But it's not so simple. Higher education might not be the right path for everyone. College remains a good investment on average. The problem is that on average doesn't mean for everybody. And the fact that more people are borrowing to go to college, they're borrowing more, means they're taking on more risk. The reality is that not all debt that students might take out makes sense. Matt says that you can think about good student loan debt and bad student loan debt. Good student loan debt is a loan that was taken out for a degree or credential that pays off for the student, where that's an investment that they were in some ways happy to make. Of course, it'd always be better if someone else paid for it and you didn't have the loan at all, but it's an investment that pays off. So that's maybe a $20,000 loan for a bachelor's degree that leads to a good middle-class income. It could be $200,000 for a law degree from an elite school that leads to a law firm job that starts out at $200,000 a year and goes up from there. So taking on debt always comes with some risk, but good debt is likely to pay off in the future. It will give you access to higher income that will allow you to repay your loans in your lifetime. The flip side of that is bad debt, and that's where you make a an investment. You take on debt to try for a degree, and maybe you don't get it at all. Or you get a degree that doesn't have much value for you in the labor market. It's a degree that you would gladly return if only you could and get your money back. So when we're making choices in our lives, how can we distinguish between good and bad debt? Matt says it's all about outcomes. We can look at the institutions people are going to. We can look at their completion rates. Someone that goes to a college with very little likelihood they're actually going to get a degree. That's probably a bad investment or a place where folks go in making not very much money and leave making not very much money. You know, colleges are supposed to be engines of opportunity and economic mobility. And if they're putting people out who end up in poverty more often than not, that's suggesting it's not a good investment for a lot of those folks. And if you're a student or a family with a prospective student, how should you think about this decision? You have to think seriously about the cost up front, you know, the loans you're taking on, the risk you're taking on, and the likely long-term payoff. And obviously everyone's not going to come out the same way there. So there's really kind of a, a trade-off to be made about how much am I willing to pay? How much am I willing to borrow? And on average, the more money you expect to make, the greater should be your confidence in taking on, on loans. Clearly, if you're not going to make very much money, you shouldn't borrow $100,000. Um, whereas if you make a lot, you'd be more comfortable with that. But exactly what the right number is, I mean, that's, that's sort of in the eye of the beholder. 
So while it's easy to consider the benefits of taking on debt to pursue higher education, there could be real costs to taking on the debt, especially if you fall behind in repayment. So even though the federal government is not technically a bank with 1.5 trillion in student loans, it's acting as a bank. And just like banks do, it reports credit information to credit bureaus, to the three major credit bureaus. So that's a good thing in that, for in, in the sense that it's an opportunity to build a, a credit record for people who didn't have one before, which would make them eligible for other forms of credit. But it, the downside of it is that you don't pay your student loans. It's going to be reported as a delinquency and then a default in your credit records. And obviously that's going to have a negative effect on your credit score, which has all the effects that folks know about. And more and more former students are facing the prospects of these delinquencies. So I think we have a serious crisis when it comes to student loan repayment and student loan default. Take a long-term view. The federal government publishes three-year default rates, and they're not that high right now, probably somewhere between 10 and 15%. But if you look over, say, 12 years, something like half of people are defaulting on their student loan. That's pretty remarkable, right? Half of people are defaulting on their student loans over time. And there's also a troubling racial overlay to these data. When we break down the types of groups who are more likely to take out student loans by race than ethnicity, the story varies. So if we look at student borrowing by race and ethnicity, we find that Black students are more likely to borrow than other groups of students. And that's true even at every income level. So it's not just that Black students on average come from lower income families and borrow more as a result. But if you compare Black and white families at every income level, you see more borrowing among Black students. And the racial wealth gap is probably a big reason for that. Because if you look at black and white families at, once again, same levels of income, you just see enormous wealth gaps. So a black family and a white family both making $100,000 a year, the white family is more likely to have inherited assets to draw on, more likely to have a home that they could perhaps borrow against, but that wouldn't show up in the student loan data. You may remember our discussion of the racial wealth gap in past episodes, but without a bigger wealth safety net, it can be harder on average for black students to pay back loans. So now imagine, you know, black families have less wealth to draw on, both to pay to send their kids to college, but then the children who go to college have to borrow more because the family had less wealth. They have less wealth to lean on as a safety net if they get in trouble and have a hard time repaying it. If it takes a black student a little longer to get a job after college, they may not have the same you know, family resources on average to draw on that a, the average white student would. Another notable part of the landscape is that students of all backgrounds are taking out loans. It's not just those on the lower end of the economic spectrum. So you might think that it's lower-income families that borrow for college, and it's true, lower-income students from lower-income families do borrow, but students from middle, upper-middle, even higher-income families in a lot of cases are borrowing as well. Borrowing has Student borrowing has really changed over the last couple of decades from something that was more focused on the middle class because high-income folks just paid for it out of pocket. Low-income folks had grants that were generous enough to cover the cost of college. As the prices have gone up and as it's possible to borrow more, you really see a lot more borrowing across the board. And surprisingly, the people with the smallest loans are the ones who are most likely to miss their payments. The people most likely to default on their student loans are not the people with the most debt, but the people with the least debt. You know, having debt of maybe only five or $10,000, on one hand, it sounds like not very much to a lot of people. But what it means is that you probably never finished your degree because if you stayed around long enough to finish a degree, you might have taken on more than five or $10,000 in debt. Basically, this means for a lot of people that they got in a few semesters or credits at a for-profit college or at community college, left without a degree or really with any additional earnings potential, 
and are most likely to struggle to pay it off. The bigger picture is if you look across the amounts of borrowing, you see very little relationship between the amount borrowed and the default rate. So people borrowing 10, 20, 50,000 aren't defaulting at very different rates than people with 75, $100,000 in debt. That's because what matters is not how much you borrow. It's a combination of how much you borrow and how much income you have to pay it back. So the more money you make down the road, the easier it is to pay off a larger balance. Whereas a small balance is going to be hard to, to repay if you have very little income. And what's more, the people who are most likely to default on student loans are already at risk of defaulting on other types of loans. One thing that Urban Institute research has found is that a lot of people who are going to default on their student loans, we look at their credit records before they default, they already had a pretty bad credit score. They already had medical debt or utilities debt and collections. So it's people who are already at risk of defaulting on all sorts of credit are then taking on a student loan and defaulting on it. So if you already have other kinds of debt and collections, and then you get a loan from the federal government because the point of the program is not to deny you based on your past credits, give you access to this opportunity. Some people succeed, right? Some people use that to get college education, improve their their earnings, and then maybe deal with some of those those other debt stressors. But for some folks, life gets in the way, you know, for whatever reason, whether it's their fault or not, the college opportunity doesn't work out. And now it's debt piled on on top of existing debt. So overall, the student loan debt numbers continue to pile up. But for the first time in a while, the issue is starting to get some real attention from policymakers and presidential candidates. There are literally tens of millions of Americans who are being crushed by outstanding student loan debt. Well, now we got millions and millions of families in this country who are struggling with outrageous levels of student debt. There are some new proposals percolating that aim to fix these problems. And there are really two issues at play, helping people deal with the debt they already have and thinking about dealing with the costs of college in the future. Senator Warren proposed forgiving up to $50,000 of debt for each person in a household making up to $250,000 a year. So it's about 95% of households with debt would get some benefit from this policy. So what an Urban Institute analysis found is that would be about $960 billion, about two-thirds of all outstanding federal loans. The distributional implications of the proposal are complicated. The benefits would be tilted towards people in the middle class and the upper middle class. And that's just because it's not so much a feature of the Warren plans, because that's where the student loan debt is. That's where people are borrowing. It's people who are from the middle and upper middle class families and then end up there because college pays off for a lot of people. At the same time, we found that because Black families are more likely to borrow to go to college. There would be a disproportionate benefit that Black families would get a larger percentage of the benefits of the Warren plan than Black families are as a percent of the population. Other policymakers have proposals that are more targeted. Secretary Julian Castro has said, let's forgive the student loans of folks who spent three out of the last five years on a public assistance program like food stamps. And that would obviously be a lower amount of loans would be more targeted. So there's a trade-off there between how generous we want to be versus how much we want to try and target it to people who we think are struggling the most. Matt thinks proposals also need to be forward-looking. So it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out. Because on one hand, you know, a lot of people want the loans wiped out, but we haven't seen that many ideas about what to do about the loan system going forward. Mm-hmm. So even if we took Elizabeth Warren's plan at face value and forgave two-thirds of the debt, it's not clear that we wouldn't just go back marching right, right towards that. Um, because on one hand, she's proposed to make college free in some way with new federal money. 
Um, but that doesn't talk about graduate school. And we know there's, there's big dollars there as well. And obviously, we don't want to be in a cycle of forgiving debt, having people borrow again. That's sort of no way to run, to run a bank or, or a higher education system. It's unlikely that any of these proposals will take hold soon, but it's clear that this $1.5 trillion issue of outstanding student loan debt is not going away. And the tricky balance of good debt for people to get access to higher education and bad debt that leads to stormy skies for some individuals and our country's fiscal outlook will continue to be there. I think one thing that makes American higher education exceptional in some ways is we give a chance to anybody who wants it, right? Anyone with a high school diploma or a GED can show up somewhere, you know, probably a community college, and have an opportunity. And the federal government will give them a Pell Grant, you know, up to about $6,000 a year. We'll give them a loan, a few thousand dollars more, um, no questions asked. And there's real benefits to, to that broad access because for a lot of people, that's an opportunity they wouldn't have otherwise, and it works out for them. But we know for a whole bunch of people, it doesn't work out, and they end up with the debt. So if we were to move to a system where the government just paid for everything, we might try and pull back on that access. And that's not to say that's a good idea or a bad idea, but it's something we're really need to consider. As always, we'll close with some key takeaways. Here are three things you need to know. One, our total student loan debt as a nation has increased dramatically in the past couple of decades. Beyond costs, that reflects increased higher education participation in both college and graduate schools. Two, when thinking about student loan debt, it's important to think about good debt versus bad debt. Good debt provides a chance to increase your income over time, which also means you're more likely to pay it all back. And three, the pursuit of higher education remains in general a good investment, but not for everyone. As policymakers propose solutions, they'll need to balance our higher education system's goal of access to opportunity with the risk that comes with supporting high levels of debt. So that's our show. Big thank you to Matt Chingos. You can learn more about the Center on Education Data and Policy on our website, www.urban.org. And please take a second to rate us and review us on your podcast app, we love to get the feedback and it helps others find the show. Big thank you to amazing producer Katie Smith, Kate Villarreal, and Dave Connell, and our sound editor extraordinaire Riley Byrne from Podigy.co. That's P O D I G Y.co. Our music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team, this is Justin Milner signing off. <laughs>